0: Kia ora koutou Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Well, Kiota, everyone, welcome into the Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey, co-host um, of the Hoon on the Kaka with Peter Bale in Hoon Bay.
1: Bernard, it's very good to see you in my in my sitting room. And that uh, you could hear a little a dog barking a minute ago is one of my favourite dogs. It's my neighbour. Uh, his name is His name is Hero, and he's a black lab who, which very nicely and very sensibly, barks occasionally at jet skis but he's a very loyal, thoughtful, thoughtful intelligent dog who smiles with all his teeth out whenever I come near, which I like. I have occasionally been allowed to take him for a walk
0: Ah good. Oh, what I want to see is him racing down and jumping into the sea to try to to chase after the jet skis and grab them off. That's a
1: very good idea. That's a that's an excellent idea. It's a bit of a cliff. I think he might yeah, he's a bit of an old dog, but he 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 does guard his owner very 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 well. That's lovely to have you in my front room although I'm sitting in my spare room and and it's getting quite warm in here and I I sort of I feel as though I've been sent to my room, you know, but it's very nice <laughs> to have you nice to have you at my place.
0: It is it is warm. It is the end of a golden summer. Uh, I just think. Can it we just won't not end. say it's
1: the end, please? I really don't like it.
0: It seems to be going on forever.
1: Yeah. I want it to go on forever, actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it may well do. We'll find out more about that in our climate chat with Catherine Dyer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: exactly. Uh, That's a very good point because I'm going to Nelson next week and to the, going to the Nelson Lakes. And I think oh, that lake boy. that we've been, both been to together, Rotawiti, only goes up, you know, only changes in temperature in the water by about one or two degrees maximum between summer and winter. Oh. So. You know, I will definitely take, be be taking my wetsuit. Of course, our friend yeah. Patrick Smelly is going there this week for for the wooden boat festival or the vintage boat festival. I, on the other hand, am accidentally going there when the powerboat festival is on the following week, which uh-huh. will mean that I will be able to hear. There's a there's a very famous powerboat that uh, races used to race up and down when I was a kid, and it has a Merlin V12 in it from a Spitfire or a Hurricane. And it's you know, when it's when it's going full full tip down from the head of the lake to where to where our place is, it sounds like a either a Bristol Freighter is about to land on the lake or a uh, Spitfire is coming down. It's pretty impressive, but I hadn't quite anticipated.
0: I shattered to think of the emissions.
1: Oh yeah, where is Catherine? Yeah, emissions, emissions, yeah. emissions. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure there'll be a very nice little electric boat puttering along, and I will yes. no doubt take out my father's 1953 dinghy with its, um, the even then, second-hand uh, seagull motor, which uses incredibly oh. small amounts of petrol. Yeah. Two-stroke, in fact.
0: Great. I'm jealous. That is that sounds like a, a great trip. Um, but it has been a heck of a week for news, uh, not least of which the closure, pretty shocking closure of News Hub, 300 journalists and others are going to lose their jobs by the end of June. And we're going to talk to Mark Jennings. A, a former colleague, former co-founder of Newsroom, but of course mm. for a long time the head of news at TV3, which became NewsHub. And someone who is old enough to remember a da- the days when there was just one TV news channel and that's what we're going to have. yeah uh, in a couple of months' time. So uh, it'll be interesting to talk to him.
1: but we will have I mean you can imagine, I mean we'll talk, you can imagine Paddy Gower being absolutely brilliant on um, Substack. You know, perhaps even he'll reach more people. I don't know. I I have some ideas that are about. I mean, Mark has written a kind of um, what I would do if somebody were dumb enough to try and uh, keep News Hub going, and I've I've got some ideas about that as well. But you know, there will be a future for some of these people. There will be a future for probably all of them. But uh, I think, you know, without turning this too much into a media program, you know, because we had David Farrier on last week, it is interesting to look at this. And one of the things that I've felt this week, Bernard, and we can we won't really have time for this with Mark, but I wanted to raise it with you, the dislike and resentment and mistrust of media in New Zealand appears to me to be quite profound. I have made the mistake, as I did last week, of going into uh, a couple of people's feeds, um, Sean Plunkett being one of them. And the degree of vitriol and loathing and dislike and preparedness to crap all over people who've just lost their jobs is enormous. And then I made a second mistake last night of going into Michael Bassett's commentary about the media, which was in itself really Mm. hideous and a rather mean attack on journalists and journalism. But I think it had 130 comments on it below. You know, and these are relatively sensible people. They are signed up to Hobson's pledge or at least up to Michael and and, uh, Don Brash's views. But the level of vitriol and attack on New Zealand media was just extraordinary. And this whole idea of it being bought by the $55 million PIJF, which, as you know, I was involved in originally in the founding of, and it did get rather hijacked, but it most certainly was not a bribe. Yeah. I think we're pushing shit uphill here, Bernard, with against a lot of public hostility and I, I know I'm going into some dark places to find it, but there's a lot there.
0: Yeah. It's extraordinary that it's happened so quickly. Obviously COVID accelerated the process and um, the way that people have migrated so quickly into getting news from all sorts of social media places. And the way that the algorithms for not just the likes of Twitter X, mm. Facebook and others have generated some sort of whiplash spiral issue. Yep. And it, it, it's happened so quickly.
1: It is. I mean, I, I was really struck that that Luxon, uh,
0: Christopher Luxon, the Prime Minister,
1: raised this question of. I mean, apart from saying it's highly unlikely the government would intervene in any way in the news hub uh, thing, but he said, and the media, of course, has to deal with this issue of choice. He also made it an issue of, of business. But uh, this this issue of trust is is you know the politicians have are very guilty, particularly Winston Peters, I would say, of bringing the media into disrepute themselves to weaken the position of media to question them
0: yeah and when you're in power you don't think there's a problem to solve <laughs> in fact mm. if anything media diversity when you're in power is a problem it's when you're in opposition that you realize that it's actually quite useful to have large numbers of media for you to talk to and reach and hope to get your message out to a wider public and at the moment the the government are you know fairly relaxed about moving to a a one tv news channel uh, world but those people who were around in the days when Robert Muldoon was bullying TVNZ's news editors, and there were all sorts of fights behind the scenes, when to get anything out in New Zealand you needed to, you know, basically be connected to a newspaper. It is. Um, it is a different world.
1: Yeah, we'll miss it when it's because it's. I, 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 think you know this, Bernard. But one of the things that inspired me to become a journalist when I was about eleven was watching Simon Simon Walker take on mm. Prime Minister Muldoon about the New Zealand patrols and his, you know, Muldoon's constant warnings about about Russian submarines, mm. and. I just found that you know, I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, it wasn't 11, I was a fractionally older than that, but I'd never seen anything like that where a journalist really took on the politician. Unfortunately, I took that so much to heart that I acted as a most annoying little bull terrier, well, terrier by the time I, I was in the lobby but, and in the gallery, but um, I'm, I'm over that
0: now. Well, some, sometimes you need some grit in the mix to clean things out.
1: Yeah, but you can't bite and bark all the time. Uh, especially not when you look like a 16-year-old school dropout, which I was. Now, speaking of dropping out, Bernard, I heard uh, Wallace Chapman describe you yesterday as an economist. He said, we're going to be joined by independent economist Bernard Hickey. I nearly nearly dropped my glass of wine.
0: Yes, I uh, have been trained as an economist and certainly uh, enjoy talking about economics and reading about it. And uh, I am independent. But in the strict sense of the word of, you know, working with an economics team and having some fancy models and coming up with some forecasts, that's something I don't do.
1: Now, you're also turning over another career leaf
0: tonight by becoming a stand-up comic. So this is an event I'm um, going to be at tonight in Auckland at the Basement Theatre with Robbie Nickel, and we're going to talk about the world of the political economy. He's going to be funny, and I'm going to try and be the straight man. And that'll be uh, that'll be good fun. I thought that was uh, my t- job. Yeah, yeah.
1: To be your straight man.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's, um, it's going to be good fun. Um, but uh, news these days, you can find it in all sorts of different places and in different ways. And we're really lucky. We've got Catherine Dyer here as our climate correspondent.
1: We are lucky, and, she's, and we are also lucky that she isn't making us incredibly jealous by being somewhere in Northland.
0: That's right. Yeah, no, no, you're back, back in just as warm Auckland. Um, and uh, Catherine, talking of warmth, you've been following the, uh, the numbers on sea temperatures, air temperatures, and, uh, you know, you can become inured to these numbers, but it's just worth remarking just how many records and for how long.
2: Yeah, so the, the marine heatwave, the global marine heat wave, is about to turn one year old. So mm-hmm. it's started smashing records, not just, you know, like it, it smashed the records by a lot in March 2023. And it, that has continued all the way through until today in February. It's still well above anything that we've seen before. So it's about about to turn one.
0: Yes, and one of the factors there is the removal of sulphur from um, shipping fuels, which seems to be playing out in warmer sea temperatures along those routes. Could you tell us about that?
2: Well, yeah, there was some new shipping rules in 2020. I think we've talked about these before. And ships were required to remove a lot of the sulphur content from their emissions. And so that reduced them by, uh, you know, I think uh, around 75%. And those sulfur emissions are like aerosols that attract moisture and form clouds and then become, reflect sunlight coming in. So in some of the heat maps that you can see of the ocean, you can actually see areas like Mm. trails where the ships move, Uh where you can see it's become hotter as a result of losing those those clouds. It's it's an
1: interesting indication, Catherine, of how relatively small changes can have an impact, though. I mean, this is a weird change that was for positive, theoretically positive reasons, has had a strangely negative negative or and, and quite perceptible short-term effect. What do you think it might say for, for the, some of the geoengineering ideas?
2: Yeah, I mean, some people are saying we, that actually we've been conducting a geoengineering experiment for the last you know, 100, 100 years, years where yeah. we've been putting these aerosols into the air um, and they've actually been doing that job of reflecting sunlight. And as we reduce that pollution, it, it's, it's adding to heating in the short term. Um, and so maybe, you know, this is the the suggestion of Jim Hansen that maybe we should put some back up (laughs) there just mm, to mm. just to cool things down for a while. I don't know. The one thing that that is always concerning about, you know, when you start doing that sort of thing deliberately is that there, there is a price to pay if you suddenly stop doing it. So if, if you require that to be managed by people and and you need it to be um, stable, then you also need your world to be politically stable and supportive of that. And, and, um, yeah,
1: it could be a sort of global cane problem.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. If you make any sudden changes, then the results could be even more devastating than you know, what they would have been if you'd just left it alone in the first place.
0: And that's the, da- the danger where you start to weaponise your climate solutions. You put them in the hands mm. of one particular power, able to put them up there into the atmosphere. And um, one way to exercise power is to threaten to stop doing it
1: and i think we can know which power that would be would would be the one that's lagged most on you know fossil fuels it would be the united states
2: mm. that'll be doing this right yeah i don't know that it's uh, that it would even be a particularly difficult thing to do so i'm not sure that it has to be the most technologically advanced country that does mm. it it could be any number of places that do it locally or regionally for particular reasons you know so
1: yeah, well, India's been talking about doing it with the, with the, for, the, for the monsoon, hasn't it, on those years when the monsoon rains don't really, don't really work necessarily. Catherine, I wonder, uh, there was an interesting comment I saw today from Helen Clark related to um, uh, Shane Jones, talking about giving a kind of a government indemnity to fossil fuel companies to come back to do exploration to protect them from any future government change. You know, that there would be something in their contracts which allowed them to be compensated if a future government turfed them out. What do we make of this kind of determination? And is there an argument for greater um, New Zealand independence and fossil fuels? I can see it for gas. But, you know, now that we've shut down Marsden Point, that doesn't seem logical that we're going to get any more energy energy security from it
2: yeah well it certainly doesn't look like there's much of an option to restart marsden point um, i don't know i guess you could make you could make it an argument for just about anything if you try hard enough but that the indemnity clause reminds me a little bit about the of the interstate um agreements we have with trade where a, mm-hmm. a foreign state can sue your government if they do anything that inhibits corporates from making money from making profit which can, can really Throw a spanner on the works of anybody trying to advance kind of environmental causes. I think the problem with that kind of thing is that it shuts down any efforts that people might want to make in the future to reduce reliance on fossil fuels.
0: And also, there's a this is a double-edged sword for Shane Jones and the current government that if they choose to take these quite aggressive measures to, frankly, increase um, emissions. Then the European Union, which plugged in a nice little poison pill into the free trade agreement to say, if we uh, renege on our Paris agreements, um, we'll shut down this trade agreement. And uh, if you think the European Union are uh, bluffing, uh, then of course you just have to look at the protests from farmers uh, in recent days. And. How, of course, it's convenient for the farmers to lock New Zealand farmers out, and they'll use whatever excuse they can, even if they're not particularly not particularly uh, sensitive or uh, in favour of climate action. They're quite happy to use it as an excuse <laughs> to block block imports of competitors. So um, th- that can play both both ways. Just just finally, Catherine, on uh, the issue of uh, mining and uh, pumping stuff into the atmosphere and the connections to GDP growth. We're going to get a report tonight from the United Nations, a five-yearly report on our resource use. What is it likely to expected to say about how much more stuff we're going to use and pump out as we grow GDP and whether we can ever disconnect our GDP growth from our emissions growth?
2: Yeah, so that's the UN Global Resource Outlook report. And they actually did a presentation to some EU ministers about, or last month, at it- Ahead of this report coming out. And so some of the headlines have already been reported on. And so they're basically estimating that our um, resource extraction, material, raw material resource extraction, is going to likely to increase another 60% up until 2060. And that's on top of a 400% increase that we've already seen since 1970 of resource extraction. And this is basically where rematerializing all of our energy supply chains and our transport systems and you know it, it takes resources to rebuild all of those things mm, mm. differently to the way we had them in the past
1: and, and to shift them from fossil fuels to rare earths and and yep. uh, cadmium and everything yeah
2: yeah, there's all sorts of elements to this. Like, for instance, a lot of those resources are coming from um, mining in the middle of conflict zones and developing countries and that it, it gets pulled out of there and then we take it into the global north and use it to transition our energy systems. And then we go to the UN and we look at those countries and wave the finger at them for not keeping up with us in terms of rebuilding their own energy systems. So it, it is, you know, there's a, an element of kind of colonial colonialist type practices going on. And they're also, though, in this report, what they're actually saying is that, you know, the idea that um, we can decarbonise and decouple economic growth and well-being from all resource use or material throughput and environmental impacts is not very convincing and that the the, the prevailing focus on cleaning up the supply side, which is, you you know, focusing on efficiency and intensity and things like that, it needs to be complemented with more demand-side measures. And and when they say demand-side measures, what they're talking about is doing things and putting in place policies to reduce people's demand for the end products that require those resources, which is, is pretty close to the kind of thing that degrowthers like to... Ah,
0: <laughs> the final heresy. Degrowth. <laughs> yeah, Catherine. Thank you very much for for jumping on the show today. To See you, Catherine. Okay. Wa.
1: Hi, Robert. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Are you changing the world down in Otago down there? Has, has the new vice chancellor turned up in your office to help you know get you a Dyson to vacuum it and everything,
3: D- dust your books? could. <laughs> you might think that, but I couldn't possibly
1: comment. So another interesting development is what the hell is Benjamin Netanyahu doing? With this talk of a of a Ramadan ceasefire, with with Biden saying it might happen this weekend, Hamas saying, "Oh no, it won't," and Netanyahu still talking about total victory, is this is this all about putting pressure on the Qataris and Hamas about about the hostages or what? What's what are you feeling or picking up from it?
3: It's very difficult to disentangle it. I agree, um, and and the, the the one the reason it's so difficult is because the Americans and the Israelis are increasingly saying slightly different things. Mm. And um, Mr. Netanyahu is insisting there will not be a Palestinian state, and he's also insisting uh, that the offensive in Rafah will go ahead. He's Mm. also saying that victory is within sight, but he's giving no objective indicators of that. And uh, how can you speak about victory when 30,000 Palestinians, many of whom had nothing to do with the events? Of the 7th of October, which caused this massive Mm. and disproportionate military retaliation, are dead, including more than 13,000 children. I haven't heard any apologies from the government of Israel about that. And their inability to distinguish between civilians and military targets is very worrying. So what we may be witnessing is a bit of posturing by both Mr. Biden and Mr. to try to pull the other one over to their Perspective on the way forward,
0: because it does look like that um, Biden's connections to Netanyahu and support for Israel's actions are really hurting him politically with his own people.
3: Oh, in the Michigan the... hundred thousand uncommitted voters,
0: mm. and um, this is a this is a concern for Biden because the latest polls show that in the swing states, Donald Trump is ahead of Biden, and uh, the latest yeah. from the Supreme Court suggests that. The hopes some sort of uh, legal block might come in before the election seems to be fading. So for Biden, it it becomes an existential issue: the support of uh, of Israel.
3: Yeah, but I think I think Joe Biden believes that he's now facing a terrible dilemma. That if he does use his leverage and say to Netanyahu, "That's enough, that's it, we're not supporting you anymore," immediate ceasefire, and that will be done. He then worries. That he'll get savaged by the Republicans for abandoning an ally at a crucial time, just when they are on the verge of victory. This is why Netanyahu is using this victory rhetoric, not because it's objectively true, but because he's trying to squeeze Joe by putting pressure via the Republican Party. And by the way, Mr. Netanyahu has no great love for the Biden administration. So yeah, I mean, it. it, it I think Biden feels the only thing he can do Is get a temporary ceasefire given these perceived constraints and hope that that might lead to something a little bit more permanent. But it, 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 you know, I I, I agree with you. You know, uh, sometimes politics is about choosing between difficult choices. I think, on balance, Mr. Biden needs to increasingly act with a sense of moral compass and increasingly do the right thing rather than just the political calculations. Yes, he's quite right that he will anticipate that the Republicans would pillar him if he said to Netanyahu, that's enough. We, America's taxpayers' dollars will not go on for the sort of military campaign you've been engaged in anymore. You've had your chance. You've had four months to win this, and you haven't done it. So it, he knows that that will draw British criticism. On balance, it might, it might just help him salvage. A situation politically i'm not saying it will because i think a lot of those people who've abandoned biden particularly young people are not going to come back in a hurry
0: and in particular the political problem for biden is that to win against trump he needs big turnout he particularly needs young voters and young women because the debate between the republicans and the democrats in many states is about abortion And what's interesting about uh, the change in political attitudes along age groups, not just in the United States, but around the world, is that young women are increasingly turning liberal and to the left, in many ways, a lot more than young men. And for uh, Biden, he needs those votes. And uh, in particular, because he has a strong argument on on the abortion and women's rights issues. But of course, many of those voters also... Shocked, deeply shocked at the images they're seeing day after day coming out of Gaza about, you know, the, the um, slaughter of innocent children yeah. and and
3: civilians. Yeah, and and, the, and the, I think you are absolutely right, Bernard, because I think that before Gaza came along, Biden was going to use you know the abortion issue to actually win quite a lot of Republican women voters. Because a lot of Republican women voters mm. are very unhappy about, you know, um, the Roe v. Wade overturning. and uh, But I think that possibility, that opportunity is closing. Because I, I think um, while his leverage over the abortion issue is being reduced by what seems to be a, a lack of empathy on a human level. Also, the fact that the United States has found itself at variance with its professed support for an international rules-based order. Uh, You know, you only have to look at Gaza to see what a lawless military campaign that has been. I was really
1: struck, Robert, uh, and and I did do, do some digging on it, and I haven't seen it reported really outside quite um limited ranges of 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 um, arab and, and muslim press was this extraordinary quote from lekhudz I mean she's not from the extreme right she's from the from the netanyahu party from the uh, from the netanyahu party may Golan the minister of social equality saying quotes i am personally proud of the ruins of gaza and that every baby even 80 years from now will tell their grandchildren what the jews did so we have to understand the depth of this you know, the well, we I think we do understand it very well—the depths of the existential fear that that Israelis fear. But that kind of biblical standing on the ruins of Gaza is 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 an extraordinary thing, especially when you've got the IGC, both having said there's a plausible case to investigate genocidal intent, and then separately having this case which Israel's not even bothered contesting of the Palestinian, yeah. uh, which is authority. potentially
3: explosive. The second one,
1: yeah. Yeah, just explain why. Why so? It's a second inquiry by the World Court, arguing that the occupation since '67 is illegal. Yeah. Why? So why could it be explosive?
3: Uh, I think they may be more inclined. I'm not a legal expert, so I, I say this tentatively. But I think they may be more inclined. The evidence is much more clear-cut than it is when testing out on genocide, the first case. That is to say, mm-hmm. you're exploring, and. You know, the successive American presidents have complained publicly about what they've called illegal settlements. Now, they went before the ICJ. What was interesting to me was the American case. They said that it was wrong to declare uh, that the settlements were illegal, although that's what many presidents have complained about, but legally they said it was understandable given the security situation that Israel faces. Mm. Mm. So they're actually not disputing whether the occupation, they're not claiming the occupation is fully legal. They're just saying it's a necessity given the security situation. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that goes down with the judges. But I just want to come back to the other point you raised, Peter, when you quoted that member of the Likud about, you know, taking pride in basically dismantling Gaza in a way that Mr. Putin would have been proud of in places like Mariupol. I think, and this is a point that's being made by many Jewish people in the United States and other European countries, you're not being pro-Israel by remaining silent when Israel is making its own situation even more insecure. And killing large numbers of innocent Palestinians does not enhance Israel's security. And it's strange, it's very incongruous for Mr. Netanyahu to talk about victories in sight when they have killed so many Palestinian, innocent Palestinians mm. in the process, that doesn't make Israel more secure. People who've lost children, who had nothing to do with Hamas, are not going to be well disposed in the, to Israel in the day after. So, you know, in a sense, America, I mean, according to the criticism in the US, many American Jews have said that Mr. Biden should have acted very robustly with Israel, not not to let Israel down, but to be a true friend. If you see a friend embarrassing itself or doing something harmful to its interests, do you remain quiet?
1: Robert, um, Winston Peters, the foreign minister today, announced that the political wing of Hamas was going to be you know, uh, seen as a terrorist organization, the same as the military wing. Then he also did that thing we've seen others do, which is impose sanctions on a range of, of Israeli settlers by name, who have stirred up trouble in the West Bank? What what do you think about the New Zealand position right now? It sounds like we're, we're you know we're playing it delicately, but generally following in the in the um, in the wake of others.
3: Closer alignment with our traditional allies in the Five Eyes and the United States. It's eroding a distinctive New Zealand position. Let's be quite clear about Hamas. It uses terrorism, but it's also a social organization which is responsible. It is a social movement, and it's a resistance movement. And by the way, non-state actors don't have a monopoly on terrorism. As we've discussed before, this country itself was the victim of state-sponsored terrorism. Mm-hmm. So it, it signaled that New Zealand is in the process of aligning more closely, but New Zealand's been strangely tongue-tied about war crimes committed in Gaza. uh, So this is a a position where I think New Zealand may be seen by the global south and even by countries like Ireland as essentially being a bit selective in its designation of terrorism.
1: Yeah, Robert, may I ask you, draw you in on a little bit of a question, a couple of questions on Ukraine, because I have a feeling that we're you know, we we are all at risk after two years of of the fatigue being partly with us as well, the fatigue about Ukraine. And we we kind of see it as, a, not exactly see it as a done deal, but one of the things that I've, we, at the top of the hour, Bernard and I were talking a little bit about media, some of the dark places that I've been investigating and including going into one area, which was a, a, New, Zealand M, a New Zealand would-be MP for New Zealand First, who is circulating the canard that uh, the CIA deposed, Yanukovych in, uh, in Ukraine and that the whole Orange Revolution was, was, was an American conspiracy. I mean, I've seen that now circulating quite intensely as a sort of, as a sort of meme, uh, including, of course, from Tucker Carlson and, and to some extent from, yes. um, from Elon Musk. And
3: the Brexiteers.
1: Yeah, which is really at a re- very risky time for supporting Ukraine.
3: It's re- an interesting reflection on New Zealand First, Because it shows there are currents within that party which echo the stance taken by the pro Putin caucus in the Republican Party. What they do not point out is this so called American coup. It wasn't an American coup per se. I think the Americans and many Western countries were quite pleased to see a pro government, a pro Russian government led by Yanukovych go. But the circumstances are that a lot of people protested. At Yanukovych's U-turn, he negotiated an agreement with the EU for a trade association agreement. Russia said it wouldn't accept it and offered instead a loan of $15 and Yanukovych caved in. That infuriated lots of people, and there were widespread demonstrations in which the Yanukovych government was responsible for the killing of 100 people. So, yes, Yanukovych's government was democratically elected. But as we know, democracies and democratic leaders can commit atrocities and they can Mm, mm. um, abuse their own people. And many Ukrainians, you speak to most Ukrainians, and they said Yanukovych went to where he was always working. He fled to Russia. If the circumstances in which Yanukovych lost power, you know, were even seen as murky, let's say they were seen as murky, that is no excuse for an illegal intervention or invasion, I should say, by Mr. Putin in 2022, which tore up the UN Charter. This is just simply a a straight land grab. Are people from New Zealand First saying that's okay?
1: Uh, So the New York Times did a very good report this week about a sort of daisy chain of CIA managed or assisted Ukrainian intelligence bases all up and down the uh, front line. Now, that would seem to me to be exactly acting in both Ukraine's interests and American interests. And if we go back to 2014 and go back to the Maidan protests, it is pretty well known that George Soros' organizations supported and, and gave fun, helped with the uh, Orange Revolution it also is you know the national endowment for democracy and and to some extent the cia there is a dedication there to support democratic movements in the interests of the united states so if, rather than seeing this as a conspiracy it is surely you know the, what their job actually is in a sense is is to promote democratic outcomes that are both of the in the interests of the people of each country but also to some extent in the in the interests of nato and 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 the west and of the rules based order as you say
3: Yes, um, and I would add to that, that really the Ukrainian response to the Russian invasion since February 22 does actually, I think, undermine the argument that the present government is just an unpopular stooge of the Americans. After all, if that really was the case, if Yanukovych was manipulated out of power by the CIA it doesn't make sense that they, if they were really all pro-Russian, like Yanukovych, and the whole thing was a top-down CIA plot, then why didn't Ukraine collapse like a house of cards when Mr. Putin's forces went in there? It doesn't make a lot of logical sense to me. You know, the fact of the matter is Mr. Putin attempted to annex the whole country, and he failed. And you know, I think one thing is quite clear. The Ukrainian resistance is pretty comprehensive and it's pretty consistent. And, uh, you know, it, it seems to me those sort of arguments that external manipulations from the West have led to this situation, that Mr. Putin was provoked into this situation, well, it, it doesn't sit comfortably with the realities of Mr. Putin's authoritarian regime. He doesn't brook any opposition at home, no. as you made quite clear, Peter, in your recent piece in the spin off. But in addition, his behavior at home reflects his attitude to near neighbors like Ukraine. Mm.
0: With obviously the Ukraine under enormous pressure on, on the battlefield, um, running out of shells. Um, we heard some comments this week from Emmanuel Macron, France's president, that uh, he was open to the idea of sending European troops into Ukraine. That comment lasted uh, a few moments before it was blasted away by opposition from Germany, not not the least, but others as well. What did you make of, of Macron's intervention, but also the pressure that's now on the um, members of the European Union around their own defence spending, the risk that Trump gets in, and, and they're sort of naked in, in Europe, and even uh, Germany talking about its... its uh, its ability, maybe, to have some nuclear weapons.
3: You know, Mr Macron has a track record of being a bit of a maverick and floating ideas and then having to abandon them. So this is not the first time he's made statements which he's walked away from. I think it reflects France's long-held view, which has been articulated by Macron, that there are limits to which Europe should depend on the United States. And, you know, France has consistently argued that Europe needs an army. Quite independently of NATO, European Army, but the Germans, of course, have indicated that while they're happy to support the Ukrainians, they they do not, I think, probably, and there's a lot of history involved here, uh, want to have German forces fighting in the Ukraine, unless, of course, unless, of course, Russia expands out of the Ukraine.
1: Yeah, Robert, did you see the rather extraordinary comment by Oleg Scholz, the um, the German Chancellor, who slightly put his foot in it when talking about the sending of European troops when he pointed out that, that I don't know, I'm not sure many people knew this, that there are British troops in Ukraine helping the Ukrainians run the Storm Shadow um, long-range missiles, um, which did not go down <laughs> tremendously well with the Ministry of Defence.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, that's, uh, I'm sure it didn't, but... Uh... It's interesting, though, because I think both Germany and France, in their different ways, are facing up to the prospect that with a Trump presidency, America will not be able to support Ukraine. And are they prepared to allow Putin to win? And I think both of them, although in different ways, have said no. It's just that they, I think Germany prefers NATO becoming stronger and much more assertive. And uh, trying to give Ukraine the tools to do the job, uh, I think Mr. Macron was probably laying on a bit thick and he backed away from it by saying, and if necessary, we'll back that up with our own troops.
1: Yeah. On another point of conflict that we've we've talked about uh, and I'm just partly because Mark Jennings is coming up to talk in the in the section we're doing on New Zealand media in a minute. Um, newsrooms Sam Sachdeva has done not a bad piece about what the New Zealand troops are doing or New Zealand forces are doing in the UK helping train the Ukrainian troops. Of course, we still don't know exactly what new zealand needs the, the sort of you could you could probably fit them in the back of a trekker but the the number of new zealand people who have been sent probably to do intelligence work and targeting work um, with the americans and the british on the houthi what do you make of the story which would appear to have originated in israel of claims that the houthi's are attacking or are threatening to attack internet cables across the red sea uh, which carry something like 7% of all global internet traffic, which was interesting that the Yemeni government denied that, which, of course, then they're, they're not normally in a position of defending the Houthis. What, what's going on there, do you think?
3: Well, it's interesting, is it? The, the Houthis do not seem to be deterred by airstrikes from the United States, UK, even when they're insisted by, you know, countries like Australia and New Zealand. And I think they are trying to sort of raise the stakes by saying you've really got to respond with a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. And if necessary, we're going to escalate further. And I think this is just an indication they're not going to back off. And it may be just, you know, let's be quite clear. Uh, It may be just a bellicose bit of bluffing. And I agree with you that I don't think the Yemeni government can actually restrain them anyway. Uh, So it's a difficult situation, but it, it shows once again that the Gaza situation has enormous potential for spreading instability right across the Middle East with global ramifications. That would be a disaster if those cables were cut, clearly.
1: Absolutely. Robert, thank you so much. You, you're most welcome to stay on in the background there, because I think Mark might be saying some interesting things in his job application to run run the legacy business of, of News Hub Burden, take it away.
0: <laughs> uh, Mark, thank you very much for coming on to the Hoon. It is lovely to see you. It's been a busy few days for you and a sort of a shocking few days as well. I mean, can you tell us about um, how you heard about the closure of a News Hub? And it's sort of a, one of your babies in a way. So how, how did you feel about it?
4: Yeah, well, look, I, I heard staff were being called to a, a must attend meeting. and well, That's never a good sign. And that the meeting was up the road from Flower Street at the Dalmatian Community Centre. Uh, that's another not so good sign. It's quite a focal point close to Flower Street where TV3's headquarters is. And of course, uh, then Glenn Kine and um, Kylie Elson, who's the head of HR, uh, essentially had tears in their eyes. So uh, the staff knew immediately that this was not going to be good news. I mean, people have asked me whether. I'm surprised. Um, I wasn't surprised that something was going to happen. It had to happen. You know, I've been writing about this for a a while, really. You can't keep losing 30 million a year and have things stay the same. So something was going to happen. I think the shock and surprise is the closing the whole show down. Um, What I expected would be a severe trimming And, you know, some major cost cuts may, but I did not expect uh, the balloon to go up completely like it has.
0: Mark, I wanted to ask, too, about the old days, if you like. A lot of our listeners and readers may not remember the days when we only had one TV news channel. And I think it's relevant because it looks like we're going to go back to the days of having one TV news channel. You were instrumental in building up the TV3 news operation and uh, coming in at a time when there was this uh, quite active competition, very you know, um, very you know, competitive. Can you talk about how why competition matters for the news business? Because you've been right right in there with it.
4: Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right, um, Bernard. Um, you know, it's been a gloves off, full on knockout competition from day one in 1989 when we started you know maybe it's got a bit more gentlemanly uh, over time but it was pretty um, intense when I I started Uh, but what it did immediately was um, TVNZ lifted its game uh, straight away to the point where they tried to smack us out and put us out of business we of course did not have the same resource uh, as they did Um, you know they were down in the luxury building in Hobson Street and we were in a crappy old butter factory up in Flower Street and and the new if you ever went into three's newsroom um, I mean politicians used to say to me uh, John Key particularly boy I, I see you're not spending any of your money on surroundings um, and you've probably all been in the building including Robert so what this did though was that it we had a great esprit de corps. Uh, that developed from being the scrappy loser in the ratings, you know. So our our benchmark became, uh, I guess, I was going to say outstanding journalism. I might be overrating ourselves a wee bit there, but we really benchmarked ourselves on journalism and, and winning each day at a time. And that's when we started to make progress on one. But one, to their credit, kept trying to lift their game. And the great thing about competition, I think, it, particularly for journalists, it, we, we thrive on competition. It's in our DNA. Uh, it's what motivates us. You know, each night we used to look at both screens. The whole newsroom would be still there at six o'clock. Nowadays, people clear off once they've done their story. But not then. The whole newsroom stayed and we all stood and watched. And if somebody had got beaten, nobody really said anything, but nobody needed to.
1: Mark, what do you what do you make of the current situation, though? Because it was it was interesting to me. I mean, you're talk, you've you've come up with a plan to, to to fix it and to to slim it down and so on, and that might be accepted. I I have a plan for it too, which I'll tell you about in a minute publicly. Um,
0: Let <laughs> me get my hands on it as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly,
1: exactly. Bernard will just put it on Substack and do call it the New Zealand Housing Channel. But yeah, exactly. um, in terms of Quality, you know, I, I was saying to Bernard, we, we had a session at the very top of this um, podcast about the extent to which there has been on the right in particular real glee at the destruction of News Hub, lots and more allegations about the Public Interest Journalism Fund. There's a real dislike of journalism jour- and journalists that is getting fed out there, whether it's widely, widely held, I don't know, but I'm certainly seeing a lot of it. And then you had Christopher Luxon also saying that Apart from the comment that that the government was unlikely to intervene in any way, but that media had to do something about the trust factor. Was News Hub editorially strong enough, quality enough in the last while? I mean, I'm not talking about its uh, married at first sight stuff, but, you know, there's been some criticism also of its its news
4: output. Yeah, yeah. Um... It's a difficult question to answer, Peter, particularly because a lot of my friends and colleagues um, are involved in this. But I think what we saw is um, a kind of winding down. I mean, they've had this sinking lid uh, policy. Um, They've delayed shows. The motivation of uh, journalists when that starts to happen And, and when you get to celebrating, oh, that's a good piece to camera or that's quite good you know to my mind no you you only celebrate it when you smash the competition so it's it's a bit like everybody everybody gets you know a prize or something uh, that's not that's not how the Crusaders play rugby, you, you know, so... And Mark, you, you you started the week, though,
1: just before this happened, you started the week at the centre of a small storm created by Cyclone Winston Peters, who weirdly, of course, came was one of the few politicians who came out yesterday and said that this is um, there's a risk to diversity here. But Mark, you were at the centre of an alleged um, conspiracy of elite news leaders, which is usually you and me, sometimes very occasionally meeting at the Gypsy Tea Rooms. Um you know, and I have I have no power. You have some power to um, decide whether Winston would be quotes cancelled. Would you like to just address that? I mean, did you misspeak? Is he being an arsehole? What's going on there? Um, but the word cancelled We're allowed is to ridiculous. use words like arsehole here that you wouldn't yeah, use yeah, at Newsroom, I know.
4: Well, the, the word cancelled is ridiculous. So how this came about was at the end of a 20-minute podcast on the detail, I posed a question to Peter Thompson, a Wellington academic, that there had been some talk amongst uh, journalists and senior journalists that, oh, maybe we should just, you know, stop reporting Winston when he says the media is corrupt and takes bribes. But it was just talk. And I put it to Peter and he went, no, well, that's, that's a stupid idea, obviously. But, you know, where I've clashed with Winston on this is I get really pissed off when he keeps going on about this corruption and bribes and you know he's suggesting illegality here, yet he won't say where this illegality actually is and and who's doing it. Of course, so I mean, it, do, do it you is regret a lot.
1: mark the impact of the public interest journalism fund that that's allowed this to flourish?
4: Yes, I do a bit, Peter. Um, unfortunately, I do. The fund was really well-intentioned. It produced 95,000 pieces of journalism. There wasn't one complaint upheld against those 95,000. It it kept a lot of journalists, particularly regional journalists, of which we employed three, in in jobs and those communities serviced with news. It was really instrumental in fostering Maori journalism and and training generally. And and to, to see what, you know, a certain section of people have Manage to paint it as I've, I find really um, disappointing. So um, I'm a defender of it, and I'm you know I have no crimes calling Winston out. He's this is just not true, and he knows it. Um, even even though and and you know to see him turn around within the space of a day and and mm. say oh, I thought know, that was oh. a pretty
1: good th- a pretty good 180 actually, bit of a handbrake yeah. turn.
4: Yeah, from um, Mr. Um, handbrake. But doesn't it show how, how what a skilled politician he is? Because Melissa Lee and Luxon look stupid with their responses to News Hub's demise. Winston at least looked looked like you know a person.
1: No, my, Let me let me ask you. So just very briefly, because I'm going to tell you mine as well, and that's not why I want you to be brief. But your proposal is that News Hub should shrink and do less better. Is that right? Do less. Still do it. Still do a news program. Do a half hour evening current yes. affairs show to to yes. go up against the advertorial on
4: TVNZ? Yes. So two things about that. You know, you've got to have a differentiation in the market. So just as I was taking over at three, uh, my predecessor, Rod Peterson decided it was after the Iraq war where we had done hour-long bulletins. He decided to stay at an hour. And and the ratings started going up. So TVNZ immediately went to an hour as well, and that stopped our growth. Um, I, I think it, there's a, a place in the market for a half-hour uh, news bulletin here. And when you've got a really slimmed-down organization, that, that is enough airtime, and, and you can do the news in that airtime. You do all the important stuff, that's for sure. And then I think there is a place for a daily current affairs show, but a, a, a lightly staffed one that is based around mainly hard interviews. Now, I don't know whether Ryan Bridge is totally up to that, but I reckon he should have a go at it and and give it a go. And and we'll see whether he's up up to it or not. Then basically you you then are just stripping back to a digital that that's your on air component, and you strip back to a digital uh, news service after that. You move the whole lot to, you know, some nondescript place in suburbia. And you get on with it, and you do it without a lot of highly paid presenters.
1: Do you mean you mean uh, you mean somewhere just off Kings and off um, New North Road? <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah. But um,
1: Mark, let me let me ask you one question as well, because you know Warner Brothers Discovery also owns CNN. And when I was at CNN, we made a series of joint ventures, so CNN Czech Republic, CNN Philippines, yes. CNN Poland, uh, I think there is, um, CNN Greece, some of them are being, CNN Philippines was just shut down about three weeks ago. Do you think that CNN brand could have a role in creating some kind of digital news product in New Zealand that that had the advantage of, sitting, of the CNN brand sitting behind it?
4: Yeah, well, I'm really uh, surprised that Warner's haven't tried to leverage um, their muscle into this market. You know, they do have CNN, they also have HBO Max, which sits over on Sky. So, I, I honestly don't know why they bought three. It puzzles me. They they paid 20 million for a, an outfit that's losing 30 million, and they seem to have had no plan or strategy to turn that around. So, um, and now we've ended up in this mess. But I think there's one other factor in this is that advertising agencies and big companies need, at least in the short term, to support NewsHub. If there's a feeling in the community that we need to keep this, Um, because if you cut the cost back pretty much to the bone and you bought more advertising in, I think um, Warners would find it very hard to suddenly uh, mount their argument that it's closing.
0: Just finally, from me, Mark, there is a devil's advocate argument here to say, hey, you know, there's been a lot of uh, struggle and fear in the last, you know, five or six years in media. But over that time, we've had some amazing new competitors grow, um, including the likes of Business Desk, Newsroom, which I'm certainly... Uh, really proud of it's made a huge impact the spin-off uh, many others um, maybe this is just the natural you know birth and death of organizations and um, nature will heal there'll be something that come up
4: yeah that I think that is a very relevant point point. Um, and Sean Plunkett put that to me today as well you know and he puts himself in in that mix too of course um, so I guess though what you know, look, we are, Burnett, as you know, we are proud of what we've done with Newsroom, and so is Duncan with Spinoff. Um, but I was talking to Duncan today about this, and these are still these are still kind of subscale businesses, though, to mm. some degree. And, um, you know, whether, like, for instance, okay, let's say 200 people go at uh, News Hub. Spinoff, us, and a few other platforms combined would still not take more than be 20% of that size of that newsroom. So yeah, we're we good at what we do, and I I think you know we'll see probably more. And and of course somebody you know Peter, you just mentioned Substack, and and you know journalists like yourself, Bernard. Um, there's openings totally for that. But I think there's something about having also big, powerful newsrooms. So when we have the earthquakes that wreck a city in, the, in Christchurch, um, we have COVID, we have all these big events, that's when you also need some big newsrooms to be in play. So, yeah, but I do take the point. I think, you know, I hate to be sort of parroting Lux in here, but, yeah, the market will throw up new options. Um, I agree. Mark, thank
0: you so much for coming on to the show and I really appreciate your time on what what was a busy day. Um, just finally, I wanted to throw it to Robert, who looks at how democracies thrive and die and the role of media and all of that. What do you make of it as someone who tries to understand how public life develops and whether the bastards are kept honest?
3: Well, I think it's a very disappointing development. I echo much of what Mark said uh, there's some excellent people at News Hub, and we've got some excellent, you know, um, media sources. But I, 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 go back to the point about competition. I think, you know, as someone who's not a media specialist as such, but have had fair amount of contact with people in the profession, there's some really excellent people in the profession, and I think it's vital that there is a successor to News Hub in some shape or form, because I think it's important. That we don't you know in terms of big newsroom we we only have, if, if there's only one i I think as a democracy and a growing democracy, I mean you know, we're a country of more than five million people, and uh it's likely that we'll be a lot bigger in the in the next decade, possibly seven million by twenty forty. I think it's important that there is competition, real competition in in the area of media, and uh, some of the issues really do need to be interrogated, some of the big issues facing this country. And that's more likely to happen, I think, when we've got diversity, more diversity uh, rather than less.
0: Robert, thank you very much. Lovely to have you on.
3: And now to the skateboarding dog.
0: Skateboarding dog, Peter, go for
1: it. Yeah, just because we, you know, we've got to lighten things up. And uh, what I loved about the story was that um, the, there's a couple of whales who's put the hump, who've put the hump into humpback, which is that for the first time, a pair of humpback whales have been found uh, making love. Or in this case, more rooting, really, I suspect, as we might call it
0: here on... Um, that sounds like uh, an awful lot of splashing.
1: It does. Well, it, they did it quite deeply, as it were. And apparently they have a genital slit uh, in which they keep their... Um, very much like us with our speedos, Bernard, they have a genital slit that keeps them um, keeps their penis tucked away for speed and swimming capability. But um, some observers noted two... Two boy, um, male uh, humpback whales having sex with each other, which of course is a is a you know kind of an interesting story in its in its own right. I don't think they had cocktails before, but um, apparently, as we know, actually with dolphins, I think homosexual behaviour, as the Guardian writes, uh, is common in the animal kingdom and has been spotted amongst dolphins and orca whales, but never previously between humpback whales. But of course, this is the first time that any kind of sex, whether it's gay sex or procreative sex or just you know, a bit of an afternoon route when you're when you're when you're swimming from one one place to another, um, but it's quite an interesting
0: story. Yes, I started to think if there are pictures. It's amazing what you can do with drones these days.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, keep your speedos on, Bernard, and you'll be swimming and <laughs> doing other things as well. Well, hopefully yeah, not actually.
0: What w- wonderful to see you. Have a great <laughs> evening, and we'll see you all in a week's time. Cachita, now everyone. Bye bye, Bernard.